Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Monday, December 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special edition uh, of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. And uh, in uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, for this episode, uh, we'll have dispatches on the growing Pentagon presence in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, a region in West Asia and Northeast Africa. There are more journalists being killed in Gaza. The North African state of the Kingdom of Morocco, people are demonstrating in solidarity with Palestine, and the Vatican has expressed solidarity with the people of Gaza. In the second hour, we look at the worsening humanitarian situation among Palestinians in Gaza. Later, we examine unprecedented uh, targeting of journalists uh, by the IDF in Palestine. Finally, we look back on the Massey lectures uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the last several months of his life. The Massey lectures uh, broadcast over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in December of 1967, uh, just uh, four months uh, prior uh, to the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And here in the city of Detroit, uh, coming up on Monday, January 15th, 2024, uh, the official federal holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Detroit uh, MLK Committee uh, will present the 21st annual uh, Detroit MLK Day Rally and March. It's going to take place uh, beginning at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church on Monday, uh, January the 15th, uh, 2024. The uh, location uh, is at 8850 Woodward Avenue between King and Holbrook. It's in the north end section uh, of the city. And uh, the event is open and free uh, to the general public. Uh, so please, uh, those in the city of Detroit, the suburban areas of Detroit, southeastern Michigan, uh, southern Ontario, and north uh, Ohio, uh, are more than welcome to come and attend uh, this important annual event uh, that honors the actual legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement, the Movement for Empowerment Against War, and against uh, imperialism. And uh, right now we want to move into our musical interlude. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, Um Kaltoum's Orchestra Film Festival. Uh, this is a concert uh, that uh, was held on May 7th of 1959 in Cairo, Egypt. Let's listen in. أيها السادة مع كوكب الشرق مرة أخرى في مسرح حديقة الأزبكية نواصل إذاعة سهرة الليلة وها هو موعد فتح الستار قد اقترب وبدأ المحاضرون والجمهور يفد إلى داخل القاعة بينما تستعد 
الفرقة الموسيقية المصاحبة لأم كلثوم وتأخذ مكانها داخل المصرح وهي تتكون من الأساتذة محمد الأصبكي على العود محمد عبد صالح على الآنون وعلى الكمان أحمد الحتناوي عبد المنعم الحريري محمود العصبجي صلاح عبد القادر اسماعيل العقاد عز الدين حسني احمد العريان لبيب حسن كريم حلمي وعلى الشلو محمود الحتناوي وحسان كمال وعلى الباص عباس فؤاد عازف الناي سيد سالم وضابط الإيقاع إبراهيم عفيفي وخلف المسرح وفي غرفة أم كلثوم أخذت كعادتها تستقبل كثيرا من المعجبين بفنها من جميع الأقطار العربية الكل هنا يتساءل عن الاغنية التي ستقدمها ام كلثوم في الجزء الثاني من هذه السهرة انها اغنية تحبون الاستماع اليها دائما اغنية اروح لمين للاستاذ عبد المنعم السباعي وتلحين الاستاذ رياض الصنباطي وكما قلنا يا استاذة ان المعجبين بفن ام كلثوم يفدون اليها في مطلع كل شهر من جميع الاقطار العربية مع ام كلثوم كان هناك اناس من دمشق ومن حلب ومن السعودية ومن اليمن ومن مراكش وكان الكل يتحدثون الى كوكب الشرق عن المعجبين بفنها في اقطارهم والحقيقة ان ام كلثوم عبرت في كثير من اغنياتها عن احداثنا الوطنية الكبرى وشاركت بفنها الرفيع في التعبير عن هذه الاحداث ولعلنا نعرف ان كوكب الشرق تحمل كثيرا من الاوسمة التي انعم بها عليها من حكومات الدول العربية فتح الستار وسنستمع الان الى اغنية اروح لمين كلمات 
الاستاذ عبد المنعم السباعي وتلقين الاستاذ الموسيقار رياض السنباطي
Oh, 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 oh,
وعادت ام كلثوم فملكت القلوب والاسمع في اغنيه الاستاذ عبد المنعم السباعي اروح لمين انها باختصار قصه الحب كل حب وقصه الحبيب كل حبيب قصه الهجر والحرمان والعذاب الذي يجده كل من ذاق طعم الحب لقد بدات القصه بسؤال وانتهت بنفس السؤال اروح لمن وكما ان القصه لم تنتهي كذلك لم تخف ولم تخفت رغبه الجمهور في سماع ام كلثوم والسعاده مقاطع هذه الاغنيه لقد اقفل الستار ايها الساده وما كاد ان يقفل اول مره حتى ارتفع التصفيق مدويا وطاح الحاضرون يطالبون ام كلثوم بالاعاده وخرجت ام كلثوم تحيي عشاق فنها باسمه ضاحكه ثم اضطرت الى تلبيه رغبتهم وهكذا ايها الساده تمضي بين الصحراء فننتقل من اغنيه الى اخرى ومن لحن الى اخر نشوف نشنف اذاننا بفن ام كلثوم وغنائها العظيم الان يا استاذه يعود الميكروفون الى دار الاسعاد لننتقل للمره الثالثه والاخيره بعد قليل ولنواصل الاستماع الى سهره ام كلثوم Uh, from a uh, concert uh, broadcast uh, live uh, over uh, Radio Cairo in the North African state of Egypt. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, this Monday, uh, December the 25th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com uh, uh, forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. The head of the Sanaa negotiating delegations, Mohammed Abdul Salam, revealed that an American warship, 
quote, hysterically, unquote, uh, released uh, fire uh, during a Yemen Armed Forces exploratory mission in the Red Sea. The head of the Sana negotiating delegation, Mohammed Abdul Salam, revealed that an American warship hysterically released uh, fire during a Yemeni Armed Forces exploratory mission in the Red Sea. He clarified that uh, while a Yemeni naval forces uh, reconnaissance aircraft overpassed the Red Sea in an exploratory mission, uh, the American warship hysterically fired using multiple weapons, an act uh, that unveiled its confusion and concern. He also added that one of the missiles fired by the battlefield uh, battleship exploded uh, near the Gabon-owned tanker sailing through the Red Sea from Russian ports. Furthermore, Abdul Salam uh, warned that uh, the Red Sea would be an active battlefield if Washington and its allies remained as imperious uh, as they are now, adding that uh, countless and uh, adding that countries that border the Red Sea must recognize the reality of the dangers that threaten their security, and affirming that the U.S. and its allies threaten international maritime navigation by militarizing the Red Sea. Earlier this week, the leader of the Ansar Allah movement uh, warned the United States of America against attacking Yemen, stressing that American battleships and vessels would become a target for Yemeni missiles in the event an attack. And other news uh, taking place on Sunday, uh, three journalists were martyred by Israeli bombardments mounting the total death toll of journalists killed by Israel to 103, according to the government media office in Gaza. On Sunday, three journalists were martyred by Israeli bombardments counting the total death toll of journalists killed by Israel to 103, according to the government medium office in Gaza. Turkish state-run news agency Anadolu revealed that the journalists were all employees of Palestinian Al-Rai Radio. Mohammed Yunus Al-Zatunia, a sound engineer, Mohammed Abdel Kalek Al-Af, a photojournalist, and Ahmed Jamal Al-Madun, deputy director of the radio and director of the visual media department. This comes a day after Palestinian journalist Muhammad Abu Huwadi, uh, who worked uh, for al Istiklal newspaper, was martyred in an Israeli airstrike carrying out his duties in the Al-Shujaya neighborhood in Gaza, an Al-Mahadeen correspondent has reported. The Israeli occupation forces destroyed on Friday the office of Palestinian Today an Arabic-speaking Palestinian TV channel in Suhad Tower in Gaza City. The attack also destroyed broadcast vehicles that belonged to the channel. In this context, the Al-Mahadeen Media Network issued a statement condemning this deliberate attack and endorsing its absolute solidarity with Palestine today, including all members, all its members, Correspondents and administrative team Al Mahadeen considered the attack as evidence of the pathological Israeli sadism and hysteria as a result 
of his abject failure to confront the national Palestinian media in general and the resistance media in particular. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. In other news, thousands of protesters marched through the Kingdom of Morocco's capital city, Rabat, in solidarity with Palestine. Reportedly, protesters called for the end of the Israeli war extermination and expressed opposition to their government's normalization of ties with the occupation. Thousands of protesters marched through Morocco's capital city of Rabat in solidarity with Palestine. Reportedly, protesters called for the end of the Israeli war of extermination and expressed opposition to their government normalization of ties with the occupation. And uh, finally, Pope Francis uh, has kicked off uh, the global Christmas celebrations with a lament that Jesus' message of peace is being drowned out by the futile logic of war in the very land he was born. Israel's deadliest ever war on Gaza cast a shadow as the pontiff presided over the evening mass on Sunday attended by 6,500 people and St. Peter's Basilica at the Valley Vatican. Tonight, our hearts are in Bethlehem, where the Prince of Peace is once more rejected by the futile logic of war, by the clash of arms that even today prevents him from finding room in the world, said the Catholic leader. The 87-year-old pontiff said the real message of Christmas is peace and love, urging people not to be obsessed with worldly successes and the idolatry of consumerism. He spoke of the all-too-human thread that runs through history, the quest for worldly power and the might, fame, and glory, which measures everything in terms of successes, results, numbers, and figures, a world obsessed with achievement. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Monday, December 25th, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. You're running from 
of uh, the Tempting Temptations from 1966 uh, live at the Upper Deck uh, Roostertel uh, in the city of Detroit, uh, the Motown sound of the Temptations. And uh, Don't Look Back, uh, the name of the track. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for this Monday, uh, December 25th. 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, we've been covering uh, extensively uh, the situation in the Gaza uh, Strip part of uh, Palestine, of course, uh, occupied uh, Palestine, very much a reality uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place uh, throughout uh, the West uh, Asia region. And uh, let's listen uh, to a report on uh, the question of humanitarian assistance as uh, the bombs fall on Gaza. Hundreds more killed in Gaza since Friday's UN Security Council votes for more aid. What practical impact will the resolution have? And how can aid get to 2.3 million people living under constant attack among destroyed infrastructure in a live battle zone? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Derina Bugeda. 
celebrations among diplomats and officials after the United Nations Security Council on Friday finally passed a motion to allow more aid into Gaza. But that mood wasn't shared in the Strip. Israel's attacks have continued raining down Western-supplied bombs on an area where many of its 2.3 million people don't have the food or water they need to survive. The war pursued by Israel's far-right government has killed more than 20,000 Palestinians in just over two months. More than 50,000 have been maimed or injured, and nearly all Gaza's population has been forced to move. So what does the UN resolution for more aid mean in reality? And what is the reality of those in Gaza today, both its people and those trying to help them? We'll be asking our guests this and more in a few moments. But first, this report from Imkalsum Sharif. Half of this charity organization know meals they are preparing won't be enough to feed all people queuing up here. In Rafah, a city in southern Gaza, tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians depend on food handouts. They wait for hours to get a single meal to last the day. Honestly, people's situation is very, very difficult. We are heading towards a very severe famine. May God protect us so that people do not die of hunger. But not everyone is lucky. In a city housing most of Gaza's 1.9 million displaced people, food, water and shelter are hard to come by. Israel's continuous airstrikes and its expanding ground operations have isolated the Strip and stopped its businesses. Stores have no stocks and people have neither work nor money to buy basic goods. They depend on humanitarian aid, but only a trickle is getting in. We stand in a long queue for about two hours or an hour, and sometimes we don't get any food, and sometimes we do. The Chaki says it's feeding about 10,000 people each day, but stocks are running out. We suffer from food shortages. There is no food. Lentils are out of stock, as well as peas, beans, and bulgur wheat. All the foods have run out at the market. People need food, water, medicine, but none is available. Everything is cut off. Perhaps today is the last day we can provide food for the people. UN agencies are warning of a risk of widespread famine. More than half a million Palestinians, a quarter of Gaza's population, face what experts classify as catastrophic levels of hunger. We are fed up. This is not a life. I swear such a war has never happened before. Now there is real hunger. My children are dying of hunger. Aid coming from Rafah at the border with Egypt is subject to Israeli inspection. Another crossing point with Israel has just been approved. Whatever can enter Gaza is restricted by Israel, with delivery held up by border checks. Israeli bombardment has destroyed much of its infrastructure, making the delivery of aid a logistical nightmare. The UN Secretary-General blames Israel's relentless bombing for preventing humanitarian aid from entering the besieged strip. The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. I urge the Israeli authorities to lift restrictions on commercial activity immediately. 
In Gaza, people in hospitals witness some of the most desperate scenes. Most are barely operating with no fuel, power, medicine and even doctors as Israel continues its attacks on medical facilities across the territory. A UN Security Council resolution passed on Friday is meant to scale up the delivery of aid. Relief for diplomats and officials in New York, but the coming weeks will tell whether it brings any respite for Palestinians. Umikulsum Sharif for Inside Story. Okay, let's now bring in our guest. Joining us from Khan Yunus in Gaza is resident Mansour Shaman. From Hamman, we have Ahmed Bayram, who's the regional media and communications advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council. Joining us from Vienna is Lex Attackenberg, who's a senior advisor with the Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development. And he was also the former chief of ethics at UNRWA. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for your time. Mansour, uh, from Gaza, since the resolution which calls on parties to the conflict to allow and facilitate the flow of humanitarian aid to Gaza through land, sea and air routes, tell us what you're seeing on the ground. Has there been a scale up of humanitarian aid? Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for having me. I think it's too early to tell. Um, let's, uh, let's observe what happens here inside the strip over the next uh, three to four days to see uh, what kind of um, impact that resolution had on the ground here. Um, currently, uh, the issue is uh, that there's a lack of security, there's a lack of safety in all of Gaza Strip. Uh, I'm currently here in Nasser Hospital. I've been here for the last 70 days. Uh, together with 30,000 other refugees in one medical complex. And until now, I have only seen come to Nasser Hospital, which is the biggest operating hospital here in Gaza Strip after the destruction of Ashifa, around 28 trucks and one fuel truck. That's it. So uh, I think that we need um, much, much more when it comes to providing aid and providing the field hospitals and fuel supplies in order to ensure that the lives of 2.3 million Palestinian civilians continue to be sustainable. Mansoor, I hear what you're saying about observing over the next few days the impact that that resolution may or may not have. But one of the points mentioned in it was the opening of Karam Abu Salim, that border crossing that is crucial. Are you hearing at all whether that border crossing has been opened? I haven't seen any, any information on that personally. It might have been. However, what we did hear about was two days ago, uh, the IDF um, uh, hit with an airstrike um, three of the people, or four of the people, which are trying to operate uh, Ma'bar Karam Abu Salim and killed all, killed all four. Um, uh, I, I honestly don't have any information on that right now. Okay, we will be following up on that uh, in the next few days. But just one more with you, Mansoor, before I bring in my other guests. Um, look, the Israeli ambassador to the UN uh, has said that this resolution is unnecessary and it's disconnected from reality. And according to him, Israel is already allowing aid deliveries at the required scale. Now, clearly what you're saying is that's not what's happening in Gaza. But tell us how much aid um, is actually entering on a daily basis. What do you know about this? Uh, we know that uh, less than 5,000 trucks have entered into Gaza Strip since the start of this conflict. So you are talking about over the last 75 days, um, 
you know, less than less than uh, 70 trucks a day. Uh, normally, Gaza Strip during non-war times gets at least 500 trucks uh, of imports inside. Uh, however, this is not when um, over 80% of the population is displaced, uh, thousands injured, uh, and, uh, and and many in need of ur- urgent uh, medical supplies and uh, and fuel supplies in order to ensure that electricity continues to run here. Um, I think it's more of a, a PR stunt on the behalf of the Israelis, what happened earlier on the Rafah border. Even the trucks that came in, a lot of them, after being searched by the Israelis, were emptied. We only received two or three pallets of supplies. Many of the supplies that we received after being filled by the Israelis had expired food products. Many of them had things we don't need, like right. masks, gloves, and linen for our dead. Okay, Mansour, thank you for the time being. Lex Attackenberg, thanks for your patience. Let me bring you in here. Look, speaking of Rafah, uh, the resolution uh, that was passed at the Security Council also states, it says rather, that states that are not party to the conflict are welcome to permit free passage of humanitarian relief. Now, this particularly refers to Egypt and uh, and the Rafah border crossing. From your experience, how does it work on the Rafah side? Does everything have to be coordinated with the Israelis? Absolutely. The, uh, there was quite a discussion uh, in the lead-up to the latest resolution uh, about handing over uh, control over the uh, passing of aid into Gaza from uh, the Egyptian-Israeli mechanism to the UN, uh, with the UN sort of directly having the uh, the ability and responsibility to to coordinate the uh, the uh, the importation uh, of uh, of goods into Gaza. But that was one of the reasons why the why the passing of the resolution was delayed so many times. And effectively, uh, under the uh, under the resolution, uh, the uh, the current mechanism of whereby Israel maintains full control over what gets into Gaza and at what pace is uh, is kept unchanged. From your experience, Lex, do you think that Israel will will comply with parts of the resolution, this whole resolution? What do you think? I mean, the the, the resolution is a is a reflection of uh, of the mood of the international community, and so it's one of the factors that uh, that I believe Israel will weigh. Uh, along with uh, with pressure from uh, from from the US uh so far we have not we're we're 70 uh we're, we're 11 weeks into the war we have an abundance of prima facie evidence of genocide and ethnic cleansing uh from Gaza and increasingly also from the West Bank so far this has not neither uh restrained Israel nor uh, those governments complicit and, and enabling it to continue its, its onslaught on the on the people in Gaza. So things don't look good from that perspective. Okay, let's I mean, get the perspective my... from the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, uh, Ahmed Bayram. Let's bring you in. Look, even if more aid does go in, I mean, unless those trucks and that aid can actually move about, first of all, freely and then safely, then and we understand from uh, Gaza that that's not possible right now. So, so what is the point of this resolution? 
Um, it's a step in the right direction. However, it's nowhere uh, near, um, it doesn't bring us any closer to a ceasefire, which is what we all want to see ultimately in the AIDS community. Like you say, I have 50 colleagues in, in Gaza. They have all been pushed into these small pockets in Rafa. And we are, um, of course, operating under probably some of the most impossible circumstances, even by the standards of of the Gaza conflict, even by the standards of, of conflict zones. We were there in, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, even in Gaza during conflicts, past conflicts, we were always able to move around and provide aid. This time we are grounded. This time we have colleagues who have experienced loss in their families. How do you expect aid workers to, to move around when, you know, shelling, bombardment, tanks uh, are in your neighborhoods? It's, we're asking the impossible here of, of aid workers, and, and we expect them to, to, to be superhuman. They are actually, as, as we speak, they are providing whatever they can, the hot meals and the, the potable water that they can provide and some protection for, for families. But you can't do that in, 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 a, in, a, in a death zone, in, a, in probably the largest open-air crater in the world that... Um, you know, Israel has reduced Gaza to... Yeah, I mean, you're asking the question that I was going to ask you next, Ahmed, which is how do you actually have meaningful humanitarian assistance when the genocide continues and when the bombs continue to fall? Yeah, and the answer is we're hardly scratching the surface here. And to be frank with you, um, I mean, my team are now split between providing some aid and, you know, installing tents for their extended families. That's the reality of it. You have to wake up in the morning and, and fend for yourself and for your family. My my colleague tells me that, you know, all that children, his children had for a full day was, was a can of food of dry food or beans. Um, we're asking we're asking the impossible here. And I think anything short of a lasting ceasefire, anything short of um, you know, complete lifting of this siege. 16 years on top of that 70 or 80, uh, 80 days now of, of a sort of siege, nothing else can, can, you know, can, can lead to a solution here and can help aid workers perform their job. Mansour, uh, the UN Secretary General has said that four out of five of the hungriest people anywhere in the world are now in Gaza. I mean, that is a shocking, shocking statistic. Give us an idea Mansour, off. tell us what, what people have been telling you, what, what you've been seeing on the ground when it comes to this issue of food and starvation. What amount of food aid is entering Gaza right now, if any at all? Yeah, I think this is particularly true, especially in Gaza City and the north of Gaza Strip. There is hardly any news coming, but whenever we do hear news, we hear news of people actually uh, going through starvation mode. Um, I was actually sent a video of people trying to make food out of plants uh, from their own ground, from their own soil. They do not have any grains, any rice, any wheat, and they're trying to look through vegetation on the ground to make any kind of food for themselves there. So this is in particular true for Gaza City and the north, uh, especially with the lack of aid trucks and, uh, and logistics uh, going to them up there. However, in the middle region and in the south, where I am right now, it's a little bit better. But like you said, every day it's, 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 uh, it's, like, a, it's like a 12 to 14 hour um, 
uh, mandates, you know, by the heads of the families, the fathers, the mothers, uh, you know, they have to uh, go and stand for, to have to try to find something to feed their children. They have to try to bake bread in some kind of uh, clay stove. Uh, they have to try to, to get some clean water from any of the filtration units somewhere beside them. So um, it is it is difficult. There is definitely a, a, a malnutrition happening here. And again, we are not seeing, at least in Khan Yunus, the aid trucks coming in. Maybe it's more in Rafah because it's close to the border, but not in Khan Yunus. However, hopefully with this UN resolution, aid does slowly start trickling in. Because especially with flu season coming, with the winter, with the cold, people here need to eat well as soon as possible. Lex, a comment on this issue of uh, the real lack of food and people starving in Gaza. And also the UN has said that the entire population of Gaza faces an imminent risk of famine. Indeed, and, and in this respect, uh what is called for beyond uh, uh, a full uh, cessation of hostilities, uh, a comprehensive ceasefire, is also uh, beyond the unhindered excess of international, uh, of, of, of humanitarian supplies, also of international humanitarian workers and international journalists. I mean, one of the big differences with the previous wars is that at that time, uh, international UN colleagues were able to stay in the north uh, international journalists were there to monitor the situation and to uh, to report in real time on on you know the humanitarian needs and the and the state of the of the assaults you know in in all parts of the Gaza Strip and this is today not uh, not possible and, and crucially needed so. Uh, this is also a call for for more efforts to get humanitarian international humanitarian personnel to support their local colleagues. I lived in Gaza for a decade, and and one important function of of having international staff there was was yeah to provide support and protection to our to our courageous Palestinian colleagues. Um, Ahmed, organizations like the like Oxfam has warned that starvation is being used as a weapon of war against civilians in Gaza in an act of collective punishment. Does the NRC share that assessment? Yes. And um, Israel as the occupier under international law is responsible for the security and the food security of the people it occupies as a, um, of course, Israel as authorities, they, they do control areas, uh, they do control borders, um, the, the crossing, the border uh, crossing, uh, with, with, uh, with Gaza, which has been the main point of entry for food over, over these, uh, over these years. Um, there is another element of it, which is the destruction of agricultural lands, of greenhouses. We have seen this in, in, uh, in, uh, rights reports. The destruction of all means of life, really. I mean, there's probably, we can't think of a violation that hasn't been committed here. But, of course, the security of the people and, and the food and starvation has been used. Of course, destruction of uh, destroying water networks, for example, that's, again, against international humanitarian law. Um, you know, not facilitating the entry of food to people who are at increased risk of, of starvation. That's, again, that's one more violation. And of course, even businesses and, uh, 
shops and supermarkets that have been that have been hit here, and you know strawberry fields and and fields that you know used to feed families and businesses and small businesses. There's there's hardly you know any violation you could think of that you know has not been uh, has not been committed here and. You know, when we talk about just a point here about eight trucks that that come into Gaza, we talk about hundred, two hundred, three hundred. Not all of these trucks are actual food uh, or, or water or you know um, any kind of sustenance that people need. Some of them include shelter support, some of them medication. And so when 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 we have hundred trucks coming in a day, I mean that that can that is hardly enough for for a neighbourhood really for a street, for a, for a shelter. And that's why we have been saying that these, all of this, with the forcible transfer of the people of residents in Gaza, all of this together constitutes uh, a grave violation of international law. So just on the point, Ahmed, uh, on um, you saying that the Norwegian Refugee Council says that starvation is being used as a weapon of war, having made that assessment and that declaration, what can organizations like yours do about it? We can only speak out, to be honest, and we can only press and pressure um, allies of Israel in the, in the West, internationally, in the Security Council, to push for more aid, to push for more humanitarian aid, while at the same time pushing for a ceasefire. We have been saying this all along. You can't use water or food or electricity or connection, even Internet, which, which is, you know, we, we also see examples of starving people of, of connectivity in Gaza, which is just just horrific for people not be able not to be able to check in and, and you know speak to their families and, and confirm that you know someone is alive or not. Right. And all of this together, I mean, without the pressure, without international community pressuring Israel, we're not going to have a solution to to this. Um, um, Ahmed from Gaza, um, I'd just like to talk about the issue of pregnant women for a moment, because, look, there are lots of vulnerable groups in Gaza, of course, right now. I mean, the entire population is vulnerable, but we're hearing stories of pregnant women who are at particular risk uh, because um, and baby formula cannot be found. And milk, of course, is in severe short supply for toddlers who are relying on it. You speak to us from Al Nasser Hospital. How are these women coping and their children? Uh, I'm, I'm located in a tent right adjacent to the maternity ward here in Nasser Hospital. The wall I'm touching is the maternity ward. Wow. It houses dozens of, of women in labor and, and, and babies who have been delivered. And uh, five days ago, uh, an Israeli tank struck the third floor of this maternity ward, killing one female and injuring uh, dozens of uh, women in labor and newborn babies. It didn't kill more because that bomb didn't explode. And I'm trying also to help a lot in the charity work here. And the number one thing that is needed is things related to hygiene and things related to baby food formula. So you are right. There is a lack of baby food formula. There is a lack of diapers. There is a lack of um, women tabs. And, um, and, and the only solution for it, since there is no manufacturing in Gaza, is to import it, is to get it from the outside. So hopefully this UN resolution will allow more baby formula, more food, more women medical needs to come in as soon as possible to help to support the civilian population here on the ground. Lex, um, look, as we're discussing, I mean, the needs are so immense and so huge. If there is another humanitarian pause, a corridor, or, or you know, these sort of declared safe zones that 
turns out, are not safe in Gaza. The needs are, are so huge. Are these momentary pauses enough to be able to supply the people of Gaza with everything that they need? Absolutely not. I mean, in the face of, as I, as I mentioned already, the, the abundance of prima facie evidence of, of atrocity crimes, I mean, what is called for is a complete cessation of hostilities so that uh, indeed the UN can sort of properly, together with its humanitarian partners, such as the NRC and many others, exercise its, its, its responsibility and, 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 uh, and reach, uh, reach people at all parts of the, of the strip. Uh, as long as this does not happen, and as an international lawyer, I believe it is beyond continuing diplomatic and political pressure, including from grassroots, I believe it is critical to use, to, to now make use of all available legal avenues uh, to hold those perpetrating or complicit in the commission of at, at trust when you talk about account. all legal avenues what are you referring to here yeah what i'm referring to i mean there is an ongoing investigation by the icc we're aware of that and and further submissions to the icc and pressure on the icc prosecutor karim khan is uh, is critical uh, then there is also the opportunity offered by the genocide convention uh, for uh, for states to engage the International Court of Justice, including an urgent an urgent request for provisional measures. Uh, the why do you think Why do you think that we still haven't the, seen a state the, invoke that genocide convention yet, Lex? Well, one of the main reasons is I think uh, honestly uh, fear of taking on Israel and uh, and uh, and by extension the the the, the U.S. and and Europe. Uh, there are 153 states uh, party to the Genocide Convention. There are roughly the same states that supported the recent General Assembly resolution, uh, but uh, but putting you know expressing expressing a strong denunciation is one taking legal action uh, there in a court of law and especially in the world court is uh, is an, a, you know a, a critical is is quite a threshold and yet in 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 face of the prima facie you know evidence that we are seeing it's critical that you know one or more of the of the 153 states parties step up to the, this pressure and and uh, and uh, and do the right thing as Myanmar, as uh, as Gambia did uh, in in the case of of uh, of Myanmar with respect to the genocide against the, the Rohingya, and and finally there is also a, multi, a multitude of avenues through national courts. Quite a, quite a few have already been pursued in the U.S., in the Netherlands, in in the U.K., in in Scandinavia. But much more can be done, and there is a lot of collaboration between lawyers around the world, and and right. and, and supported by Palestinian human rights organizations. And this is really, really critical at the at the present time. Only efforts at accountability can bring, you know, restraints by by the party and 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 those complicit in 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 the ongoing genocide. Okay, we'll have to leave it there on that note. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Uh, Mansour Shaman, thank you for joining us from Gaza. Uh, Ahmed Bayram from Amman and Lex Takenberg, thank you for joining us from Vienna. Thanks for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Join the conversation on X. Our handle is AJ Inside Story from myself, the whole team here in Delha. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.
Welcome back. And that was a discussion on the grave. Make sure to subscribe crisis. to our channel to get the latest news from Al Jazeera. That was a report. Click on uh, the. Of course, the grave humanitarian crisis in existence uh, in uh, the Gaza Strip. And you're listening to the Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Monday, December 25th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Detroit's own uh, John Lee Hooker, You Lost a Good Man, uh, the name of that track, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for this special edition of our program, uh, broadcasting from downtown Detroit in our studios on Monday, uh, December 25th, uh, 2023. And right now, we want to move into uh, another report on the plight of journalists. 
in Gaza who are also bearing the brunt of uh, the Israeli Defense Forces' attacks on the Palestinian people. Two and a half months into Israel's war on Gaza, our focus this week is on the attacks on journalism there. The number killed by Israeli forces is staggering. There's no shortage of evidence that they've been targeted. Looking for a beachfront property in Gaza? Israeli developers have been posting their post-war plans for new luxury settlements online. And evangelicals in America. Christian Zionists with broadcast networks that have faith in Israel. As a program about the global news media, we have covered assaults on press freedom by governments around the world for more than a decade and a half now. Never in that time have we witnessed a war on journalists like the one Israel is waging right now in Gaza. Israel has barred the international media from entering the Strip, so first-hand reporting on the onslaught there has been left to Palestinians already locked into the occupied territory. They are documenting their own genocide. The number of journalists slaughtered since October 7th, the speed at which that is occurring, is shocking. According to Gaza's government media office, Israel has now killed 97 of them. That's about 10 per week. But then Israel has a long track record of killing Palestinian journalists. That has been a defining feature of its occupation. What is different this time around is that with the eyes of the world on Gaza, Israel's war on Palestinian journalism is no longer a news story that's going under the radar. It's there for all to see. No one wants to start a piece like this with the story of one of their own. As Al Jazeera Arabic's bureau chief in Gaza, Wael Dahdu is the face of the network on this story. His cameraman was Samar Abu Dakar until he was killed last week in a drone attack in Han Yunus in southern Gaza. It was like being hit by a tornado. Three paramedics were martyred immediately and Samud was wounded in the lower body severely. I fell to the ground and I got shrapnel here in my arm. It went right through, another piece in my shoulder and two in my thigh. I tried to hide in one of the abandoned houses but I realized if I hid, I'd bleed to death. So I stumbled towards the ambulance. I asked the paramedics to rescue Samar. He said, we can't. We have to save your life first. And when his body was found, it was clear that the rockets had targeted him again, even though he had tried to crawl towards the street in an attempt to survive. Al Jazeera says its cameraman was left to bleed to death for more than five hours as Israeli forces prevented ambulances and rescue workers from reaching him. In more than a century of warfare, including World War II, there is no precedent for the rate at which Israel has killed journalists in its war on Gaza. According to the government media office there, 98 Palestinian media workers have been killed. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists puts the number at 61. Using the lower CPJ figure and comparing it to another exceptionally dangerous war to cover, Iraq, 204 media workers lost their lives there in a conflict that lasted eight years. At this rate, the journalists' death toll in Gaza will exceed Iraq's 
in about eight months, which begs the allegation that having locked the international media out of the Strip to prevent them from documenting the human carnage, Israel is targeting the Palestinian journalists it has locked in. It is extraordinarily disturbing as a journalist uh, to have a sense that certain governments, because it most certainly is not just the Israelis, the U.S. is guilty of this uh, as well, and many others, be able to kill journalists with complete and total impunity. Look, it's a war zone. <laughs> Things happen in war. Journalists are killed in war. But this sheer uh, level of journalists killed is unprecedented, and it does raise a significant number of questions. The situation has become very clear. In two and a half months of war, we have now lost roughly 100 Palestinian journalists. And this reflects clear targeting. Like in our case, for example, there was no one else where we were except for us. We were there for two to three hours, drones were roaming in the sky, watching our movements and following us. And despite this, they targeted us directly. All this gives us confirmation that Palestinian journalists are being directly targeted in this war. At the very least, if you support press freedoms and freedoms of journalists, you need to make sure that they can live, right? <laughs> that journalists have the conditions needed to do their important work. But the very, very basic first condition is that international humanitarian law protections for them are enforced. As we're, we're getting into... Oh my God, did you hear that? Oh my God. That's the hospital, that's the hospital. That's the hospital. Israel has a history of disregarding Palestinian civilian life. And Israel has a history, unfortunately, of killing Palestinian journalists who are wearing um, vests and helmets marked press and carrying equipment that clearly marks them as journalists. And this is a history that goes back decades. A track record that is long and deadly. Earlier this year, the Committee to Protect Journalists documented 20 such cases since 2001. Journalists, 18 of them Palestinians killed by Israeli forces with zero accountability. What is happening now in Gaza follows the same pattern on a gargantuan scale. As always, Israel denies targeting media workers, insisting that journalism in Gaza is mere collateral damage. And in Washington, the White House echoes that line through its national security spokesman. I've not seen any indication whatsoever that Israel was going after journalists. Uh... Kirby said that two months ago, when 24 journalists had been killed. And he keeps saying it. There's a double standard at play. American opinion makers who are quick to condemn governments they oppose for abusing press freedom have a demonstrably different standard for their Israeli allies. We sometimes have um, the international community being selective about which journalists it cares about. Like Russia and Ukraine, where the United States was appropriately outspoken. The deliberate targeting of civilians, journalists and others, would constitute a war crime. So it's something that we're very focused on. But there has been less outspokenness um, when Palestinian and Lebanese journalists have been killed. The United States should be consistent 
in its insistence on protections for journalists. When armies disobey the laws of war and there are no consequences, they will continue disobeying the laws of war. And that's what we're seeing here. We can say pretty openly, the Western media does have a Western bias and the attention that is going to be put on Palestinian journalists dying in Gaza is not going to be proportional to the attention that gets put on something that, that happens to a Western journalist. That is the unfortunate nature of the world that we live in. We all need to take a hard look at ourselves and confront our own bias, even if we don't want to accept that we have one. I just want to Picture this. You're a Gazan journalist, and your coverage is making an impact, finding audiences. Like Moataz Azaza, who has 17 million followers on Instagram. Hello. Hello. Hello, how are you? Your phone rings, and a mysterious voice speaking in English with an Israeli accent tells you to stop your coverage or to turn it against Hamas. Can you post a story maybe condemning Hamas so this can all end? What? He tells you, or you suspect, that he is an intelligence operative, and he knows where you live, where your family lives. Dozens of your colleagues or their loved ones have already been killed, and you are well aware that some of them got a call just like that one before the bomb hit. When you get a phone call from some shady character on an unknown number, I mean, that is beyond chilling. Other journalists have also stated that they have been told specifically, be careful, you know, we're targeting your area, but also not so subtly alluding to the fact of we're targeting you. It's really, um, you know, especially sort of horrifying that one should be in conversation with a nameless, faceless person with these kinds of threats, this knowledge of who you are and where you are. It demonstrates the overarching power dynamics here where Israel has so much information about Palestinians on the ground and poses this, you know, ever-present threat. And Palestinians nonetheless are doing their work and, um, and, con and persevering. <laughs> the way Wael Dachtu persevered. Seven weeks ago, he lost his immediate family, his wife, son, daughter, and a grandchild, all killed by an Israeli airstrike while sheltering at a refugee camp. Now, he has lost a close colleague. Dachtu has every reason to stay out of the field, recover from his wounds in a hospital or some supposedly safer space. But he's still out there, covering the story, and, as of this writing, still doing the job. It simply isn't possible to sit in a hospital bed while all this is happening in Gaza. Because we have to remain loyal to the blood of those who have been killed, and to our mission, documenting this historic and exceptional moment that Gaza is going through. The alternative is, what? to sit at home with what is left of my family. You could be hit by a missile at any moment, as is happening now in the streets and the alleyways and refugee camps of Gaza. And maybe become a martyr, maybe disabled. Staying at home will not offer protection anyway, because there is simply nowhere safe in Gaza.
Israeli officials have made no secret of their intention to level Gaza and empty the strip of Palestinians. Now some Israeli business interests are sharing their plans for the territory once the bombardment stops. Flo Phillips is here with more. Richard, let's start with one of the latest examples of genocidal rhetoric we've seen coming from Israeli politicians since October 7th. That was the head of a local council suggesting Nazi Germany, of all places, had some ideas the Israelis could put to use against Palestinians. That kind of talk, once limited to the political fringe, has become mainstream in Israel, including from journalists on some of the most watched news channels in the country, celebrating the devastation in Gaza. And the settler movement, which has placed 700,000 Israelis in the West Bank in complete contravention of international law, now has its eyes on Gaza. A coalition of settler groups met to talk about that last month. This past week, Hare Zahav, an Israeli real estate firm heavily involved in the West Bank, posted a proposal to build beachfront homes for Israelis in Gaza. Zahav's CEO later told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that the proposal was in fact satirical and that, though they do indeed support the project, it's, quote, the Israeli state's decision. If that was the company's idea of a joke, it hasn't gone down well on social media, except with certain Israelis who see an opportunity in Gaza, in what more and more people around the world see as a genocide. Thanks, Flo. The White House continues to back the Netanyahu government, echoing its talking points, vetoing UN ceasefire resolutions and ramping up its arms exports. The Biden administration is doing all of that while keeping a wary eye on the U.S. presidential election coming up next year. It's not the Jewish vote the White House is worried about. There are only about 8 million American Jews and about half that number of American Muslims. Of far greater concern to the Biden administration are American evangelicals, Christians. There are roughly 80 million of them, a lot of them in swing states. Many call themselves Christian Zionists. They back Israel to the hilt, and they've been far less critical of this war than many American Jews have been. To get a feel for that, just tune in to a conservative Christian radio or television station. Sample the output. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on the media side of the Christian Zionist movement in America that's been spreading the word on Israel's war on Gaza. There aren't words to describe what happened on October 7th other than the face of evil was revealed for the entire world to see. And we stand as one with you, with Israel. The October 7th attack by Hamas and the start of Israel's most devastating war on Gaza in history was a galvanizing moment for conservative Christian broadcasters in the United States. The Lord, talking to Israel, will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. I want to say to people, it's time for you to get to Israel. And when you get here, you are in this place as a watchman on the wall. There have been calls for global prayer gatherings, fundraising drives to buy bulletproof vests. We heard the need for these life-saving protective vests. Yet doesn't have enough with the hundreds of thousands of reservists. Across the conservative Christian landscape, the message from Christian Zionists has been loud and clear. This is not just a suggestion. 
that we should pray for Israel. This is a biblical mandate that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Christian Zionism is a belief that Israel plays a key prophetic role in the return of Jesus. So Christian Zionists believe that everything that happens with regard to the state of Israel from its founding in 1948 to the war that is occurring right now in Gaza are fulfillments of prophecy in the Bible. Tonight, Christians here in Israel and in the United States and in Canada and all over the world are watching what's happening and asking critical questions. Is this horrific war in Gaza part of end times Bible prophecy? Every time since the founding of Israel when there's been major wars, uh, American evangelicals who are interested in prophecy have gotten very excited about the possibility that this war is the war that signals the beginning of the return of Jesus to earth, which they believe will happen and they believe Israel and wars conducted by Israel will be central to that. Every time there's a major conflict in the Middle East, uh, the, the prophecy talk really ramps up. And I know everybody's been saying that forever, but it's kind of looking like, you know, Jesus might be coming. The talk of a holy land promised by God to Jews, his chosen people, an apocalyptic war signaling the end times and the resurrection of Jesus who would save all Christians, sounds to many as fantastical and weak grounds on which to base an understanding of global geopolitics. However, this is a fundamental theological belief of more than 80 million Americans who call themselves evangelical Christians, many of whom firmly support Zionism, the political ideology underpinning the state of Israel. Led by charismatic and deeply political preachers who understood the power of the pulpit and transferred it to the airwaves through radio and TV, conservative Christians have had a significant impact on U.S. politics for decades. Their success as broadcasters meant presidential candidates, from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump, sought their endorsement. Not only it's so good to have you with us. And often sought their policy input, too. Evangelicals really punch politically far above their weight. So white evangelicals are far and away the biggest supporters of Donald Trump, for example. And despite representing a small proportion of the population, they do turn out to vote. So yes, they do have a lot of power. They also have a lot of lobbying organizations. And uh, one that's immediately going to come to mind in this context would be, of course, Pastor John Hagee's Christians United for Israel. Those of you who are watching across America and around the world, Today, the Jewish people are at war for their very survival. John Hagee is one of the most well-known of the prophecy-oriented conservative evangelicals. He's been doing this for many decades. He's been very involved in political organizing for Israel. Israel, you are not alone. Israel, you're not alone. What I noticed about his message when he was at the pro-Israel rally is that he really downplayed the parts of what he believes that would be offensive to American Jews. So he doesn't say uh, anything about, uh, you know, this is the end times are coming, this Jesus is going to come again, Jews have to convert in order to be saved. And he doesn't say anything like that. 
The notion of Jews needing to give up their religion, having to convert to Christianity if they want their souls saved at the end times, doesn't come up too much in the evangelical broadcast since October 7th. It almost doesn't need stating, since it's a core part of the end times narrative. Those who believe it have been taught that non-Christians simply won't survive. The other reason it's not said explicitly is because it's anti-Semitic. Indeed, some of the most prominent Christian Zionists have, at one point or another, been caught saying something anti-Semitic, and yet Israeli leaders, especially Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have courted these preachers and their congregations. Reverend Franklin Graham, the first major evangelical leader to visit Israel since the war began. Franklin Graham, he's the head of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Now that is an organization with a lot of money, influence, and power. And he has this organization called Samaritan's Purse. So Graham, after the October 7th attacks, he indeed met with Netanyahu. So what does Netanyahu get out of a meeting like that, a photo op like that? Well, it's, it's a nod to American right-wing Christians that he is their friend, right? They see him and Franklin Graham getting along. It reinforces this sort of special relationship. The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Netanyahu is definitely speaking to evangelicals when he quotes the Bible. Netanyahu is undoubtedly aware that for American Jews, this war is becoming increasingly unpopular and that evangelicals vastly outnumber Jews in the United States and exercise a great deal of control over the Republican Party. And so keeping that relationship going is to Netanyahu's advantage in maintaining his relationships with Republicans and the support of America uh, for this war. The sprawling network of conservative Christian media outlets also play a vital role in cementing support for Israel's war. There are sporadic expressions of concern and empathy for Palestinian lives lost, but the focus is, by and large, on the need for Jews to defend their land. Father God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we ask that you accompany Israel's troops into the battle. What sharpens the impact of the messaging is that it's not all sermons and group prayer. Christian evangelical outlets present a lot of their output as though it's news. On the battlefront in Gaza, we're learning that Tuesday was one of the bloodiest days of the war. Religious organizations have had an impact as journalists for quite some time because they used to be clunky and awkward. Now they are much more professional looking and they talk about all the issues of the world and it allows people to get most of their news from these Christian sources and to have that interpretive frame right there. The packaging is a very black and white, good versus evil kind of framing because in their view, the Jews are God's chosen people and God gave the land to the Jews. Any claim to the land by Palestinians is wrong and needs to be defeated. So you know, Christian Zionists, therefore, support the occupation, support the annexation of more land. Yes, we want Hamas to be stopped. We want it to be uprooted and, and eradicated. But if they won't, then we need them removed. If they will leave, fine. If they will be arrested, fine. But they may have to be killed. And so if you knew nothing about that and came 
upon a sermon or a lecture by a Christian Zionist, you would think that you were looking at a good versus evil, very black and white situation, when in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And finally, this past week, a study of Facebook and Instagram conducted by Human Rights Watch concluded that the censorship of content related to Palestine there is systemic, global, and it fails to meet its human rights due diligence responsibilities. Those platforms are under the control of their parent company, Meta. Now, no one's under any illusions about where Meta's allegiance lies. Its business model comes first and foremost which means its advertisers get a big say in what you see on your feed about Gaza and what you do not. Advertisers can dictate how you understand this war. One way to get around that is to look beyond what the platform is recommending that you see. Search for what you are interested in, not what advertisers are good with. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on the uh, massacre of journalists uh, in uh, the Gaza Strip during the Israeli siege upon Gaza. And uh, we're going to take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of uh, the Pan-African Journal for this week. Uh, my name is Abayomi Azikawe and uh, we are here uh, broadcasting from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, once again, to yet another edition of our program. All right. Okay, we go. Roll it. Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty.
track entitled Champagne and Reefer, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Monday, December 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to go back uh, to the Massey lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, during December of 1967 over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Let's listen to uh, installment four of the Massey Lectures. The Best of Ideas presents the Massey Lectures by Dr. Martin Luther King. Over the past ten years, Dr. King, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, has been increasingly concerned with developing nonviolent mass tactics for bringing about revolutionary social change. The riots and other events of this past violent year in the United States and around the world have challenged Dr. King's approach more harshly than ever before. Part of Dr. King's recent response has been to plan an unprecedented camp-in in Washington for the spring of 1968, and beyond that, to be more urgently concerned with thinking out non-violent strategies for facing international social problems. In tonight's talk, recorded two days ago in New York, Dr. King places in this current practical context his theoretical reflections on nonviolence and social change. There is nothing wrong with the traffic law which says you have to stop for a red light. But when a fire is raging, the fire truck goes right through that red light, and normal traffic had better get out of its way. Or when a man is bleeding to death, the ambulance goes through those red lights at top speed. That is a fire raging now for the Negroes and the poor of this society. They are living in tragic conditions because of the terrible economic injustices that keep them locked in as an underclass, as the sociologists are now calling it. Disinherited people all over the world are bleeding to death from deep social and economic wounds. They need brigades of ambulance drivers who will have to ignore the red lights of the present system until the emergency is solved. Massive civil disobedience is a strategy for social change 
which is at least as forceful as an ambulance with its siren on full. In the past ten years, nonviolent civil disobedience has made a great deal of history, especially in the southern United States. When we in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference went to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, we had decided to take action on the matter of integrated public accommodations. We went knowing that the Civil Rights Commission had written powerful documents calling for change, calling for the very rights we were demanding. But nobody did anything about the Commission's report. Nothing was done until we acted on these very issues and demonstrated before the court of world opinion the urgent need for change. It was the same story with voting rights. The Civil Rights Commission, three years before we went to Selma, had recommended the changes we started marching for, but nothing was done until in 1965 we created a crisis a nation couldn't ignore. Without violence, we totally disrupted the system, the lifestyle of Birmingham and then of Selma, with their unjust and unconstitutional laws. Our Birmingham struggle came to its dramatic climax when some 3,500 demonstrators virtually filled every jail in that city and surrounding communities. And some 4,000 more continued to march and demonstrate nonviolently. The city knew then, in terms that were crystal clear, that Birmingham could no longer continue to function until the demands of the Negro community were met. The same kind of dramatic crisis was created in Selma two years later. The result on the national scene was the Civil Rights Bill and then the Voting Rights Act as President and Congress responded to the drama and the creative tension generated by the carefully planned demonstrations. Of course, by now it's obvious that new laws are not enough. The emergency we now face is economic, and it is a desperate and worsening situation for the 35 million poor people in America, not even to mention just yet the poor in the other nations. That is a kind of strangulation in the air. In our society, it's murder psychologically to deprive a man of a job or an income. You are in substance saying to that man that he has no right to exist. You are in a real way depriving him of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, denying in his case the very creed of his society. Now millions of people are being strangled that way. The problem is at least national. In fact, it's international in scope. And it is getting worse. 
as the gap between the poor and the affluent society increases. The question that now divides the people who want radically to change that situation is, can the program of nonviolence, even if it envisions massive civil disobedience, realistically expect to meet such an enormous entrenched evil? First of all, will nonviolence work psychologically after the summer of 1967? Many people feel that nonviolence as a strategy for social change was cremated in the flames of the urban riots of the last two years. They tell us that Negroes have only now begun to find their true manhood in violence, that the riots prove not only that Negroes hate whites, but that compulsively they must destroy them. This bloodlust interpretation ignores one of the most striking features of the city riots. Violent they certainly were. But the violence to a startling degree was focused against property rather than against people. There were very few cases of injury to persons and the vast majority of the rioters were not involved at all in attacking people. The much-publicized death toll that marked the riots and the many injuries were overwhelmingly inflicted on the rioters by the military. It is clear that the riots were exacerbated by police action, that was designed to injure or even to kill people. As for the snipers, no accounts of the riots claim that more than one or two dozen people were involved in sniping. From the facts, an unmistakable pattern emerges. A handful of Negroes used gunfire substantially to intimidate not to kill, and all of the other participants had a different target, property. I am aware that there are many who wince at a distinction between property and persons, who hold both sacrosanct. My views are not so rigid. A life is sacred. Property is intended to serve life. And no matter how much we surround it with rights and respect, it has no personal being. It is part of the earth man walks on. It is not man. The focus on property in the 1967 riots is not accidental. It is saying something. If hostility to whites is ever going to dominate a Negro's attitude, and reach murderous proportions, surely it would be during a riot. But this rare opportunity for bloodletting was sublimated into arson or turned into a kind of stormy carnival of free merchandise distribution. Why did the rioters avoid personal attacks? The explanation can't be fear of retribution, because the physical risk incurred in the attacks on property 
were no less than for personal assaults. The military forces were treating acts of petty larceny as equal to murder. Far more rioters took chances with their own lives in their attacks on property than threatened the life of anyone else. Why were they so violent with property then? Because property represents the white power structure which they were attacking and trying to destroy. A curious proof of the symbolic aspect of the looting for some who took part in it is the fact that after the riots, police received hundreds of calls from Negroes trying to return merchandise they had taken. Those people wanted the experience of taking, of redressing the power imbalance that property represents. Possession afterwards was secondary. A deeper level of hostility came out in arson, which was far more dangerous than the looting. But it, too, was a demonstration and a warning. It was directed against symbols of exploitation, and it was designed to express the depth of anger in the community. What does this restraint in the summer riots mean for our future strategy? If one can find a court of nonviolence toward persons, even during the riots when emotions were exploding, it means that nonviolence should not be written off for the future as a force in Negro life. Many people believe that the urban Negro is too angry and too sophisticated to be nonviolent. Those same people dismiss the nonviolent marches in the South and try to describe them as processions of pious elderly ladies. The fact is that in all the marches we have organized, some men of very violent tendencies have been involved. It was routine for us to collect hundreds of knives from our own ranks before the demonstrations in case of momentary weakness. And in Chicago last year, we saw some of the most violent individuals accepting nonviolent discipline. Day after day during those Chicago marches, I walked in our lines and I never saw anyone retaliate with violence. There were lots of provocations, not only the screaming white hootenums lining the sidewalks, but also groups of Negro militants talking about guerrilla warfare. We had some gang leaders and members marching with us. I remember walking with the Blackstone Rangers while bottles were flying from the sidelines, and I saw their noses being broken and blood flowing from their wounds, and I saw them continue and not retaliate, not one of them with violence. I am convinced that even very violent temperaments can be channeled through nonviolent discipline if the movement is moving, if they can act constructively and express through an effective channel their very legitimate anger.
But even if nonviolence can be valid psychologically, for the protesters who want change, is it going to be effective strategically against a government and a status quo that has so far resisted this summer's demands on the grounds that we must not reward rioters. Far from rewarding the rioters, far from even giving a hearing to their just and urgent demands, the administration has ignored its responsibility for the causes of the riots and instead has used the negative aspects of them to justify continued inaction on the underlying issues. The administration's only concrete response was to initiate a study and call for a day of prayer. As a minister, I take prayer too seriously to use it as an excuse for avoiding work and responsibility. When a government commands more wealth and power than has ever been known in the history of the world and offers no more than this, it is worse than blind. It is provocative. It is paradoxical but fair to say that Negro terrorism is incited less on ghetto street corners than in the halls of Congress. I intend to show that nonviolence will be effective, but not until it has achieved the massive dimensions, the disciplined planning, and the intense commitment of a sustained direct action movement of civil disobedience on the national scale. The dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice, not against the life of the persons who are their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to take means which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. The only real revolutionary, people say, is a man who has nothing to lose. There are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or even nothing to lose. They can be helped to take action together. They will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. Beginning with the new year, we will be recruiting 3,000 of the poorest citizens from 10 different urban and rural areas to initiate and lead a sustained, massive direct action movement in Washington. Those who choose to join this initial 3,000, this nonviolent army, this Freedom Church of the Poor, will work with us for three months to develop nonviolent action skills. Then we will move on Washington, determined to stay there until the legislative and executive branches of the government are taking serious and adequate action on jobs and income. 
a delegation of poor people can walk into a high official's office with a carefully, collectively prepared list of demands. If you are poor, if you are unemployed anyway, you can choose to stay in Washington for as long as the struggle needs you. And if that official says, but Congress would have to approve this, or but the president would have to be consulted on that, you can say, all right, we'll wait. And you can settle down in his office for as long a stay as necessary. If you are, let's say, from rural Mississippi and have never had medical attention and your children are undernourished and unhealthy, you can take those little children into the Washington hospitals and stay with them there until the medical workers cope with their needs. And in showing your children, you will have shown this country a sight that will make it stop in its busy tracks and think hard about what it has done. The many people who will come and join this 3,000 from all groups in the country's life will play a supportive role, deciding to be poor for a time along with the dispossessed who are asking for their right to jobs or income. Jobs, income, the demolition of slums, and the rebuilding by the people who live in it of new communities in that place. In fact, a new economic deal for the poor. Why camp in Washington to demand these things? Because only the Federal Congress and administration can decide to use the billions of dollars we need for the real war on poverty. We need not a new law, but a massive new national program this Congress has done nothing to help such measures and plenty to hinder them. Why should Congress care about our dying cities? It is still dominated by senior representatives of the rural South who still unite in an obstructive coalition with unprogressive Northerners to prevent public funds from going where they are socially needed. We broke that coalition in 1963 and 1964 when the civil rights and voters' rights laws were passed. We need to break it again by the size and force of our movement. And the best place to do that is before the eyes and inside the buildings of these same congressmen. The people of this country if not the congressmen, are ready for a serious economic attack on slums and unemployment, as two recent polls by Lou Harris have revealed. So we have to make Congress ready to act on the plight of the poor. We will prod and sensitize the legislators, the administrators, and all the wielders of power until they have faced this utterly imperative need. I have said that the problem, the crisis we face, is at least national in scope. 
In fact, it is inseparable from an international emergency which involves the poor, the dispossessed, and the exploited of the whole world. Can a nonviolent direct action movement find application on the international level to confront economic and political problems? I believe it can. It is clear to me that the next stage of the movement is to become international. National movements within the developed countries, forces that focus on London or Paris or Washington or Ottawa, must help to make it politically feasible for their governments to undertake the kind of massive aid that the developing countries need if they are to break the chains of poverty. As Barbara Ward pointed out when she was giving these massive lectures a few years ago, 3% of the gross national product of the industrialized nations should be flowing through international agencies into aid for the poor countries of the world. It will be tragic indeed for our nations to come before the judgment of God and try to defend the miserly one-tenth percent of our gross national product, which now goes into feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and caring for those imprisoned by fear and illiteracy. We in the West must bear in mind that the poor countries are poor primarily because we'd exploited them through political or economic colonialism. Americans in particular must help their nation repent of her modern economic imperialism. But movements in our countries alone will not be enough. In Latin America, for example, National reform movements have almost despaired of nonviolent methods. Many young men, even many priests, have joined guerrilla movements in the hills. So many of Latin America's problems have roots in the United States of America that we need to form a solid, united movement, nonviolently conceived and carried through so that pressure could be brought to bear on capital and government power structures concerned from both sides of the problem at once. I think that may be the only hope for the nonviolent solution in Latin America today. And one of the most powerful expressions of nonviolence may come out of that international coalition of socially aware forces operating outside governmental frameworks. Even entrenched problems like the South African government and its racial policies could be tackled on this level. If just two countries, Britain and the United States, could be persuaded to end all economic interaction with the South African regime, they could bring that government to its knees in a relatively short time. Theoretically, the British or the American government 
could make that kind of decision. Almost every corporation in both countries has economic ties with its government, which it could not afford to do without. In practice, such a decision would represent such a major reordering of priorities that we should not expect that any movement could bring it about in one year or two. Indeed, although it is obvious that nonviolent movements for social change must internationalize, because of the interlocking nature of the problems they all face, and because otherwise those problems will breed war, we have hardly begun to build the skills and the strategy, or even the commitment to planetize our movement for social justice. In the world facing the revolt of rag. Welcome back. And that was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in installment four of the Massey Lectures from December of 1967. And that's going to conclude our program for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Monday, December 25th, 2023, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. (coughs) If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website, uh, and that is at uh, uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to close out our program with uh, the music uh, of uh, Clifford Brown and Max Roach Quintet. Uh, this is a live concert. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Presenting the outstanding exponents of the new jazz, led by Max Roach at the drums. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce you to, at this time, George Bledsoe, our bass violinist. Our pianist, Carl Perkins. Teddy Edwards, our tennis saxophonist. And the great Clifford Brown on trumpet. First, all God's children got rhythm.
Thank you. Now it's our pleasure to present Clifford Brown playing for you tenderly.
Teddy Edwards' original, Sunset Eyes. <laughs> 